Welcome to another Say No KNOW.org podcast. We discuss all things drug related, including policy, crime, and research. We talk to professionals, researchers, and people with lived experience and discuss ideas on how we can make things just a little bit better. The Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse has supplied funding to allow this podcast to take place. Our Say No initiative is part of the Chris and Prairies Network. Please check out all the incredible work they are doing in the field of addiction and research at chrismprairies.ca. Again, that's chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed within our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members. The views in this podcast also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization I am associated with. And the same goes for all of our guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head over to our Facebook page under Facebook backslash say no org or tweet us at say no org. So thanks for tuning into this episode of the Say No Drug Education Podcast. Today we have a very special guest all the way from Ottawa. We have Senator Vern White. Uh, thanks for coming on our show, Senator. Yeah, my pleasure, Matt. Nice to nice to meet you virtually, at least. Yeah, that's right. Um, Senator White, you've you've kind of been uh, from a little bit of the your career that I've that I've followed over the years and some of the sound bites that they play in the media. You seem to be one of these senators that truly gets it. I mean, you, you haven't lost touch with your with your policing roots. Um, can you tell me just a little bit about your career and how, you know, you, you got into the policing world and then how that transitioned you into the role of politics? Sure. Well, I, I grew up in Cape Breton Island, so my first involvement with the police wasn't a good thing. <laughs> um, like most Cape Bretoners, I, uh, you know, partied a little bit too much and got myself in trouble a bit, but it didn't stop me from getting into the RCMP. And I joined the RCMP in uh, 1981, graduating in 82, Served a couple of years in Newfoundland, and then I served uh, 19 years in the north, um, serving in all, all three territories. In 2003, I left uh, Iqaluit as the commanding officer for Nunavut Territory, having served uh, four years in the Yukon, uh, five years in Nunavut, and the rest in uh, Northwest Territories. I came into Ottawa as an assistant commissioner, uh, worked for a couple of years, Left uh, the RCMP in 2005 after just about 24 and a half years, I guess, and uh, became the police chief in Durham Regional Police Service, which is a region of about just under 700,000 people just east of Toronto. And then in uh, 2007 was appointed to the chief of police role in Ottawa, where I served till 2012. I did a Part-time, I joined, I joined the RCMP. I didn't have a university education, but I did three degrees, an undergrad, a master's, and a doctorate over about 22 years part-time. My doctorate's from the Australian Graduate School of Policing at Charles Sturt University. I did my uh, thesis there on uh, psychological contract and relational theory, which is about creating change by building relationships and how negative relationships will inhibit change and positive relationships will allow you to create change. Oh, fascinating. So, so then the transition over to politics. Yeah, well, you know what? It's kind of funny. I've never been involved in politics, never belonged to a party. And um, a phone call 11 o'clock at night in 2011 while I was in Finland on holidays <laughs> asking me if I was interested um, generated about a three-week discussion because I wasn't exactly sure. Right. Um, and my getting appointed uh, my getting appointed that year, so, or 2012. Some of it's been good. Some of it's been difficult. I find it hard to... Uh, to get in, involved in the partisanship, that's a challenge for me at times. For me, a good idea is a good idea. I don't care who has it. 
uh, you know, in policing, we steal good ideas, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas in politics, we only steal good ideas that belong to uh, people who sit around us. So it's a little more difficult. I also find it difficult because, you know, um, I grew, growing up in Cape Breton, my dad always said, you, you, uh, once you know what the right thing is, you're out of options. You have to do that. <laughs> and so in politics, it doesn't matter to me whether or not it's supported by a political party. It matters to me whether or not it's going to make uh, life better for Canadians. So well, good for you. at times that's got me in trouble, but, you know, that's life. Hey, that's the way it's done. You know, sometimes when I watch on TV uh, with the two sides going back and forth and sometimes a third in there, it, it probably reminds you of the old breaking up a domestic dispute days. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it, and I'll be honest, it's embarrassing at times, you know, like yeah. um, if, your chi- if your children did that at the dinner table, you'd send them to their rooms. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, we think paying people 160000 each, they can sit there and, and behave like that. You know, I, I think it should be respectful. It doesn't have to be agreeable, but it can be respectful. Right. So so is there something in that you think came from your policing background that sort of gives you an edge or gives you an advantage sitting in Ottawa? Well, you know what? I, I think police officers across the country have something that very few organizations truly have, and that is the opportunity to look at legislation and analyze it and try to figure out how they make it work in their community. You know, what what I did from a restorative justice perspective in Iqaluit would, would be totally different than in downtown Toronto. Right. What I did from, a, you know, what I considered a serious crime in uh, in Anuvik would be often a different type of crime or less serious crime in, in some other parts of this country. And so I think it allows us to uh, take that legislation and use it the best way possible for those we serve and and often for the organization we serve. Whereas in politics, typically the legislation is the legislation and they they look at it from a clearly policy perspective, not from a practical perspective. You know, how many people, I remember one time having a discussion around uh, an assault charge that uh, in, in, in when I was sitting in the Senate, someone talked about an assault charge. Somebody got slapped in the face outside of a bar in Halifax, and they should have been charged with assault. And I said, well, they could have been charged with assault. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Whether they should have been sometimes depends on three officers working and four, 400 drunks outside of a bar. Yeah, right. I'm probably going to let this one go with a warning, you know? Right. From a practical perspective, it doesn't always fit. So I think... If anything, uh, I try to bring that practical thinking to whatever we do. And, you know, in the current marijuana legislation is a good result. I'm right, right. Trying to make people understand that this will have no impact probably on people under the age of 18 uh, and, and where they are able to obtain their marijuana. Right. Two reasons. One is all marijuana to someone under 18 is going to be illegal. Right. And secondly, because, well, probably three reasons. And secondly, because they're not going to buy more expensive, lower tetrahydrocannabinol levels of marijuana from somebody that they know who goes to the bud store versus somebody they know who grows their own with a higher potency and a, and a lower cost. Okay. So what what would you what would you say in contrast to that? Where like what like because the the hopefully the idea. I mean they're they're pumping out. There's this is kind of a sociological experiment, but. Is the is the idea not that the marijuana that then becomes available to youth came from a legal regulated source somewhere along the lines versus? Well, you well, you know weed? what? That, I mean, two things. First of all, I'm not suggesting that we should or shouldn't legalize it. Right. I'm asking the questions. 
whether or not we have enough answers to determine whether we should or shouldn't legalize it. Fair enough. I, I'm, I think most cops in this country would agree, and I would agree with them, that we shouldn't see someone with a criminal record for a joint outside of a school, right? Of course, of course. But somebody with 36 joints, that's a different story. Right. So, so I don't think, you know, I think there's a mis, mistaken belief out there that cops are running around chasing kids with joints. It, doesn't, it hasn't happened for over a decade. You're more likely to get charged with a, a bottle of beer in a park than you are with a marijuana cigarette. You know, having to fill out an HPB 3515 and send the joint off yeah. to Health Canada to prove it's marijuana, it doesn't, doesn't fit. The sec- so it's more about have we asked all the right questions. The second piece, and this is what some would say the argument is, is you know, I grew up in Cape Breton at 17. If I wanted a six-pack of beer, my 21-year-old brother would go to the liquor store and get it for me, right? And that, that's what some people are arguing today. However, this legislation... The penalty for going and getting me that 10 grams of marijuana is up to 14 years in jail. Holy cow, really? So, yeah. So, oh, and I, I think most that. people don't realize that. So, oh, I so have no clue. There's no place for an under 18 year old to buy it. They're not going to get their older brother who's going to potentially go to jail for a year or more uh, to go get them 10 grams of weed. It's not going to happen. Now, and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be that way. I'm arguing that you don't even understand what the impact of this is going to be. You're driving under 18-year-olds toward the black market. You don't have a choice. They're not going to find somebody, in most cases, who's going to go get them a, a bag of weed from the local bud store. They're going to tell you, as my older brother would have told me, if he got more than a $50 fine for getting me a case of beer, he would have said, go get your own damn beer, uh, bud, right? Right. So, so I, just, I guess for me, it's about bringing that practical dialogue into the Senate, in this case, uh, around, uh, around marijuana. The same, same type of dialogue I had around uh, supervised consumption sites, to be fair. Yeah, well, I saw uh, that's, that's one of the, uh, the first pieces that really brought attention that was the amendment that you, that you tried to make that for a supervised injection site, the doctors should be there and give an alternative to the, to the product they're getting on the street, so meaning a medicinal grade. Now that got voted. That got voted down. Why was that? Well, it passed unanimously in the Senate, by the way. Okay, good. And it was reversed when it went to the House. And I mean, first of all, if you don't mind, I'll explain it quickly. I don't know how much time we have, but I'll explain it quickly. Like Switzerland, who's been at this now for about 17 years, my argument is if you're going to have a supervised consumption site, and, and I'm, again, I'm not having a discussion about whether we will or won't. Right. The decision was already in place that we're going to have them. Right. My argument is that Vern White, a local drug addict, would have to go commit four to eight crimes a day to get enough money to buy drugs off Matt, the drug dealer, yep. to go into a supervised consumption site, to shoot it up, and if I die, that a nurse inside can bring me back to life with naloxone. That's right. That's the system we have in place. And that's the system that was being propagated through this legislation. My argument is, if you're going to have a supervised consumption site, when Vern White, the first time I show up at that site, having committed four to eight crimes to buy the illegal oxycodone from Matt, the drug dealer, right, that was made in a basement of someone's house with illegal fentanyl, yeah. and I walk into that facility, they should say, oh, you have two oxys. Let us take those and replace them with a uh, legal medical-grade opioid. Right. And they give it to me, and I shoot it up. Yeah. Now, what they, saw in, what they saw in Switzerland was the fact that once they started doing that, first of all, Vern White stopped committing four to eight crimes every day because I don't need to. Uh, secondly, Matt, the drug dealer, moved on to some other place or some, something else because I wasn't buying from him. Right. We saw less victimization of those people that I was breaking into their cars, stealing bicycles off their front steps. Mm-hmm. But more, maybe more importantly is that Vern White, the drug addict, 
Now went in and shot up first thing in the morning and maybe shot up again at six at night because it's a long-lasting opioid compared to what we're seeing on the streets, right? Uh, but as importantly, I started having a dialogue around why do I have to shoot up, right? Right, Because I'm not as high. So maybe I could start ingesting in another way, which already is healthier. Yes. And then the next thing is those people, and about 50% of them are engaged in other activities every day now. So it might be volunteer work. It might be selling magazines on the street corner, but they're not involved in doing anything it takes to get enough money to buy dope off an or a drug dealer who's supporting organized crime seven, eight times a day. So if you're going to have supervised consumption site, and the amendment we passed was that a supervised consumption facility must provide alternative drug therapy. Now, for some people, they might get them to actually try methadone for a period of time and see if they can get their life to some level of stability. And in some other uh, cases, that actually might be medical-grade opioid. And, and Now, the reason I would argue they refuse that um, is because federal legislation, they were concerned that there would be a high cost pushed on to the provinces and from a medical uh, health care cost perspective. But it's short-sighted because, yeah, they will save a few dollars on that and the, on the medical-grade uh, opioid. They'll save a few dollars by not continuing to prescribe that twice a day to an addict. But I'll tell you, the cost to society, the cost to our court system, as you know, the cost to police. Completely, completely. Uh, it multiplied 10 over the cost of that, uh, that medical-grade opioid. Absolutely. And look, it's tough for me to say that because I, I, 15 years ago, if you'd asked me, <laughs> should we provide, I'd say, geez, you know what, I can't get there. But, but when our alternative is what it is today, which is this illegal substance versus a, uh, a legal medical-grade opioid and the redu- reduction of crime and criminal activity by the addict, I have to go that way. Yeah, well, that's very progressive for, for an old retired cop, if I don't say so. <laughs> <laughs> but I often sit on some boards and have discussions uh, with some policymakers here locally, and, and they were discussing a safe injection site in our community here in Saskatoon. And I'm I'm all for harm reduction models. I my argument is is similar to yours, except I said here in Saskatchewan it's minus forty for half the year, yeah. and and I walk into a super warm house where all my friends are and they're selling pills or they're selling heroin, and this is a completely safe and acceptable place for me to use, and I'm not going to be judged. And then you're so that's where I'm going to use. Yeah, and so then you're yeah. So so your alternative is you're asking me to get my cold ass onto the bus head downtown to the safe injection site and use there. Well, that's just not even realistic. Why would anybody do that? That's why everyone here uses in houses. Yeah. So so now, uh, now, if all of a sudden I could head down to the safe injection site where I'm supervised by a professional and they're giving me a product, well, now I have incentive to go. And so I think... Yeah, and, and, and who knows, you might actually get some help when you're there. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the other the other reality too, and I think uh, you know people talk about well we've had all these fentanyl overdose deaths and you know that's why we want to do this. Well, a lot of the people who are dying from fentanyl overdose deaths would not be using a supervised consumption site, and a large number of them are actually not injectors. No, a large they're, number they're of them are crush them. and snorters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so you're not saving any of them. Um, it's one thing I think we should uh, look at as a piece of legislation that would criminalize further individuals who sell a drug that is known to cause death, for example, fentanyl. Look, we have enough evidence. I think, I think today it's 11 people every day that will die from opioid overdose in, uh, in Canada this year and will probably top 65,000 in the United States. 
So my perspective is it's already been proven. We've, we've got enough uh, case study done to show fentanyl, illegal fentanyl kills people. Um, maybe we need a piece of legislation that uh, makes a reverse onus that if you're convicted of trafficking in fentanyl, that you'll be further convicted of manslaughter or attempted uh, murder for trafficking in the first place. Maybe it's a reverse onus uh, legislation. It'd be difficult to put in place. And I think, you know, many lawyers would make a lot of money arguing it in courts that it's unfair. But I think we should try something because right now there is not really much of a uh, disincentive for drug traffickers to make their own fentanyl. And if I can, I'll give you an example. Right now um, on the black, on the dark web, you can buy all of the ingredients to make your own fentanyl. It comes in very small packets. There's one company in China that sells it in small, uh, I don't know if you have a swimming pool, but you can buy those little litmus tests, you know? Yeah, yeah. They'll send it inside those little bottles, each of the ingredients. And then you can make your own when it arrives. But if you can get enough to make uh, a kilo of fentanyl, which is about $4,500 to buy the ingredients independent, that one kilo of fentanyl for $4,500, you can make about 18 kilos of fake Oxy-80 so, or fake Percocets, right? Yeah. With a pill press that costs you 10 grand. The value of that 18 kilos of fake Oxy-80s is in the millions of dollars. Right, right. So, so when people say, well, why are they killing their clients? They're not killing their clients. They're getting rich. Yeah. The fact that people are dying is just a byproduct of getting rich, and um, they're willing to do that. So what? So what's the government doing to to tackle the organized crime at the at the higher level? Because if I'm if I'm some stupid high school kid who's decided to sell Percocets to my friends, and I sit online and I and I have a contact and I make a couple ounces to then push into pills and sell, yeah. I mean it, that shouldn't even not, that kid shouldn't even really be our target. Like, what are we doing to stop this massive organized crime coming in? Who I believe also affected the Vancouver housing market because they're having a tr- trouble getting their cash out of our country. Yeah. You know, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because I think uh, they've done, passed some regulations. For example, we passed a piece of legislation here in the Senate that made possession of the precursors a criminal offense. Okay. So it makes it a little more difficult. At least then you can catch somebody with one or two of the precursors and charge them. Okay. So we listed those items. The second thing now is that they can no longer have a pill press. They actually have to register to get a pill press, okay. which again makes it a little more difficult. You can still buy them on the dark web for ten grand or fifteen grand, but still a little more difficult. Right. I, and the last piece we've seen most recently is that smaller packages, because customs could only Canada Border Services were only allowed to open packages that were more than sixty-five grams. I think it was. Oh. And now they can legally open smaller packages than sixty-five grams, which is how a lot of the ingredients were coming into Canada. Now, the, diff, the difficulty, because that's really your choke point, is you're not going to stop this in China or India, uh, and you're more difficult to stop it when it arrives in some guy's basement in Saskatoon who's making it with a blender, you know? Right. Uh, you really need to be able to stop it at choke points, and the choke points are how it's getting in. Now, people would say, well, you know, it's easy to get things across the border. From the U.S., that's true. But actually, more uh, ingredients travel north to south than south to north. Hmm. which means ours are arriving particularly from China. So I think the the piece around choking off that how it's being shipped in is important. I think continuously working on things like the dark web and doing the cyber piece. Right. But I think as well we need to look at if ABC Corporation from Beijing, China is uh, seen to be a supplier of precursors to Canada, that something must happen to ABC Corporation. That means an agreement between Canada and China 
that they'll be penalized. Secondly, maybe that they'll no longer be allowed to participate in trade in Canada because predominantly most of those companies where this ingredient's being developed have other legitimate trade with Canada and it happens to be people within those corporations that are moving the ingredients. So I think there needs to be a penalty phase or a phased-in penalty system against corporations or companies where employees are utilizing that facility to ship uh, to ship into this country. Because the minute that happens, China will put a stop to it over there. You think so? Well, I think they'll try because the last thing they want is for us to impact ne- negatively on trade with China. Okay, I see. Now, don't get me wrong. If that's successful, India will be next, and then, right. and then it'll be <laughs> Indonesia and maybe Puerto Rico, right? But, right? but I think you have to start somewhere because, I mean, 11 people a day, if, if yes. we had 11 people dying in Canada of any other illness, we'd be doing a hell of a lot more than we are right now. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, with, with these discussions on, uh, obviously, opiates are the hot topic, fentanyl is yep. a hot topic. Is there any discussion yet in Ottawa about any of the other drugs like methamphetamine, for example, that there's probably far more usage going on and it's causing may, way more chaos and crimes, but we're not seeing them drop dead because they end up, you know, in the psych ward or... Yeah, that's right. You're referring to crystal methamphetamine, eh? Are yeah, you? yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I did a, I did a five-month uh, research piece in Australia a couple of years ago. I can send you the, the website if you want. Oh, that'd be great on crystal methamphetamine for a think tank called the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, because crystal meth is the drug of choice in Australia. Okay. And the impact is horrific. As you say, you don't see as many dead bodies, but you see people go from normal to abnormal in about 45 days. Yeah, it's a drug of choice in Saskatchewan. It is, eh? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you see there are lots of permanent brain damage, and yeah. you know they, they say you'll never be the same uh, I think in Sydney, Australia, they refer to people as zingers because when they're walking down the road, they kind of bounce back and forth. Yeah, yeah. It's really horrific. Um, we haven't seen it much here. I know in Alberta, it was big for a long, for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think back to the same battle, the precursors when it comes to crystal methamphetamine, the primary supplier is China, and, and yeah, both here and, in, uh, here and in uh, and in Australia. And I think it, it goes back to there needs to be something to motivate the government of China to clamp down on the crystal methamphetamine precursor construction because unless there's a penalty phase or some cost to them, you know, yeah, everybody has to be enticed, right, to, to focus on this. Absolutely. I think you need to have some form of enticement. The second piece, and probably the more difficult piece, is that we don't have enough drug treatment. I don't know about Saskatchewan, Ontario, it's about five months for somebody to get into drug treatment, residential. Yeah. Uh, by that By that time, a crystal meth addict will never have a normal life again. Right. There needs to be a fast track fast track system for addictions or users of crystal methamphetamine and it needs some pretty heavy duty psychiatric and psychological care when engaged with it because their life will never be the same even when they're no longer using. Yeah, that's very true. Right, was there anything in the marijuana legislation that forces the expenditure of the government proceeds that were received? No, it's interesting you say that though, because I, I, I've I, I've said it before that the government and the prime minister in particular spoke during the election that any any uh, revenue generated would go back into youth uh, addictions, mental health, uh, and and healthcare overall. I guess. Right. But the truth is, all we hear now is about how taxes are going to be offset other costs in the provinces. Oh boy. This is just. I think the addiction we should be talking about when it comes to marijuana legislation is the addiction governments have to taxes because that's really <laughs> what this is about. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. Well, that's pretty much the questions that I had for you, uh, Senator White. 
I really appreciate you taking this time and I'm I'm appreciative that you're a senator in Ottawa because it's it's nice to hear somebody that's got some common sense principles and you're kind of bringing that street knowledge that you've learned over the years to uh, a bunch of politicians sitting around you. So, oh, thanks, Matt. Look, uh, congratulations on your work with this podcast. I know uh, there's lots of people out there who are trying to become better educated and if any of them can get anything from what I provided, I appreciate it. And if they don't agree with me, I appreciate that as well. And if they wish... They can jump on my website and email me if they don't. Uh, if they didn't agree with me, I'd love to hear from them. Sure. What? Where can people get a hold of you? And I'll put it up on the show notes. Yeah. So it's uh, Senator White, one word, Senator White at uh, sen sen dot parl Okay. And are you on social media at all? Uh, Facebook. Uh, I have a Facebook website. Once they go to the, if they jump on my uh, Senator of Canada website, which is just. If they type of Vern White Senator, it'll bring up a website. Perfect. They can click on the Facebook there as well and make comments. And again, I'm not looking for everybody who agrees. I only learn if people disagree, it seems like. Well, that's completely on the same way. Uh, one last question I asked all my guests. Is addiction in itself a criminal justice issue, a health care issue, or something different altogether? Absolutely. <laughs> Which, it's all of them? Well, I, you know what? Look, I don't know if you know, when I was the police chief in Ottawa, I raised uh, over $21 million to open two drug treatment centers. Oh, wow. And to put, a, to put a, a counselor in every high school, 57 high schools in this city. Wow. Uh, and my goal was to take the word drug addiction out of our justice dictionary and put it into our social health dictionary. Because right. we were too focused on only having one tool in our toolbox being a hammer and everything does look like a nail as the saying goes. That's right. Now we've had over 914 to 18 year olds go through our youth addiction 90 day residential program with about a 15% recidivism rate over the, uh, since then, since 2010. Oh, that's low. So uh, my, my perspective is it's the, it becomes a criminal justice matter because we're not dealing with it as a health issue. Oh, I see. If every young person said today, I want drug treatment, and we could get them in there in 48 hours, we'd have a lot less criminality, both from them and from organized crime. But instead, we give them five months, and we hope they're still alive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I hope you push for that, man, because that's exactly what we need. I'll tell you what. You, uh, when you email me, I'll send you the information on, it's called STEP, Support Treatment Education Prevention. If you invite me out to Saskatoon, I'll come out, we can speak about it. Oh, that'd be awesome. Okay. Okay, thanks for your time, Senator White. Take care, Matt. You have Take a good care, day. Buddy. Thanks. Bye. So that was uh, Senator White. Uh, we got a hold of him all the way in Ottawa. He was kind enough to pop out of a discussion on uh, some of the legalization of marijuana discussions that they're having in Ottawa. So we, we really appreciate his time. As you heard, uh, you know, you may not agree with everything he said. You may agree with bits and pieces. Uh, I have to say, uh, you know, his ideas around uh, legalization of marijuana, some of it some of it makes sense. I don't necessarily agree with it all. I think uh, we, we will see some, uh, at least the potencies go down from what youth are using. But again, no one knows for sure. I definitely appreciate his, his uh, views on giving a medicinal grade opiate to people at safe injection sites. I mean, that is, that is, a, that is a cutting edge philosophy for, uh, you, know, you know, not to be stereotypical to my own profession, but for a, uh, for a, for a cop to say we need to give people support and that includes in some cases free legal access to a drug, then uh, 
yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed. I'll be following his career. I hope you do too. We'll put up uh, ways to reach out to him, his website and everything in the show notes. Check that out. And as always, please check out our Facebook page slash org. Tweet us at org, or go to our website, www.saynoorg. Thank you. And I hope to see you again.